Good evening. <clears throat> Good evening, Patriots. Like, I'm getting deeper, I think, by the way the night goes on. Man, at least I can speak now. Like, last night I could hardly speak. It's getting better pretty fast. All thanks to, like, way too much garlic, way too much ginger, and assorted other things like habanero and a little bit of cayenne. That's the way to burn it all out of you, I'm telling you. It's the best. So, Patriots, before we begin... Make sure you're taking good care of your wealth. These psychopaths want it. You don't want to give it to them. And you need to make sure everything that you can do to protect your hard-earned wealth is done through the professionals. Patriots, despite the U.S. blowing through the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling in January, the leftist White House still refuses to reduce spending. While our national leadership has buried their heads in the sand when it comes to fiscal responsibility, it's all the more time for you to be proactive. Now would be a great time to diversify into gold with Birch Gold. In times of high uncertainty and instability, gold is king. It's dependable. Birch Gold makes it easy to convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals. Here's what you need to do. Text BARDS to 989898 to claim your free info kit on gold and then talk to one of their precious metal specialists. Think about it. To dig our country out of this mountain of debt, every single taxpayer in America would have to write a check for $247,000. And it's only getting worse. Protect yourself with gold today by texting BARS to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, you can trust Birch Gold to protect your future. Text BARDS to 989898 today. Remember, that's BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898 today. All right, Patriots, that's BARDS to 989898, and you won't be disappointed. So as we were talking the other day about making sourdough bread as part of a bread and love your neighbor revolution, it looks like one of our mods, Punky, has launched the revolution officially with her first baking and loaf of sourdough bread, which she claims is great and that her biggest saving grace was she didn't die. <laughs> I've not told too many people that die from bread, but good job, Punky. Way to go. We are, um, I, you know, I really want to dig into some of that tonight from a couple different perspectives. And I'm going to start by talking about, telling some stories about Afghanistan the Afghans, um, though they can be like herding cats at times, they have a real warrior culture in in them, and it's a real interesting culture because they are they really live through their relationship in Allah. I'm not a big fan of Allah, as you probably know, but there is um, a a real interesting perspective in this, and that is that when they fight, they truly they put themselves in that place if they're in that spiritual space of living that way in their battle. We don't have a lot of faith in the field unless someone's getting shot at. But for the most part, we tend to be pretty tactical and pretty sanitized about what we do. And faith seems to crop up after the fact rather than before the fact. And it creates an interesting duality in two armies. Because one army is praying five times a day and the other army is getting ready to go on mission five times a day or all the time. And so finding those bridges is important because there's a, there's a balance. And as we found bridges, many of those bridges were centered on food. American Army is built with having mobile kitchens or you eat meals ready to eat, also known as MREs, which are basically a highly processed engineered food system that you eat that after a while, every one of them tastes the same and you just imagine that they're different and they're, and people get pretty creative on how to use them because it becomes, for a lot of times, that's the only thing that will sustain you for weeks. But the Afghans don't have that. And the Afghans don't have cooks either. They just have soldiers, men in their ranks that assume the role of cooking. And it's pretty interesting to see how that comes about. 
matter where you are, somebody is always going to have bread. And bread in, is their naan, which as I talked about the other night, is a really amazing bread in Afghanistan, the way it's cooked. Because it's cooked in traditional way. It's cooked in underground big furnace fires that are inside these massive, massive clay I'll just call it like a big clay pot. They're, they're huge, buried underground. And they're, the bread is stuck on the walls of the clay oven. And then it's reach, they reach in with a long tongue or their hands and they pull it out. So the moisture on the bread sticks it to the side of the clay oven. And it holds there until it, it cooks and it starts to get bubbles on the face of it. It's a lightly leavened bread, but there's no leavening in it. And then they pull that out and they put more in. It's a cycle. So the Afghans... The Afghan army will often build its own cook, uh, bread cooking stove or oven, and it's, but it's done in reverse. They tend to uh, they'll build a mud uh, stove, and and it's I I guess you know part of this too is a lot of discussion here tonight. I want you the improvisation of things. They use what they have very very well, and what they have a ton of in Afghanistan is dirt, and with a little bit of water you can make mud. And when you add this mud and clay dirt mixture they have together, they can very quickly create just about anything they need to survive between a wall, a, col- a, a hut to live in, or an oven to cook on. So they would make these small little bread ovens that looked kind of like a beaver back oven, if you know what that is. It's just like, literally like the back of a beaver with a fire put in, in the middle at the, at the entry point where the head of the beaver would be. And they'd fire these up, and then they would somebody would go locally and get flour and they would just mix flour and water with a bit of salt and they would get their bread going and then they would lay it on top of these ovens and it would cook and um, and then they would have fresh bread. We were up in a place called Carne and this was a little collot. Uh, well, it was actually a, a, a little combat outpost which had myself and two in America, two American advisors, and about thirty Afghan Army National Soldiers (ANA), and we were surrounded by three Taliban factions. One of which was being run by Haqqani. If you know anything about Afghanistan, he was kind of like the big warlord uh, Taliban leader. And we also had Chechnyans uh, in with the Afghans in in this particular time. And we were seeing a lot of fighting during this week, um, a lot of nightly attacks. And it really is kind of crazy. We got down to a Thursday, and um, we were as we were heading in to the what we considered to be kind of like the expecting it to be literally the last stand. We had gone through a Thursday night, and I was. Uh, Tony Lonsdale, Captain Tony Lonsdale, was the head of the American side. Just he and, and, and Staff Sergeant Eric Blake and myself were the American contingent. And um, I came out after a, a long night of a lot of shooting at us and some shooting back, but a lot of sniper activity, a lot of rounds coming in at us, a lot of RPGs hitting the base hitting the compound. We finally calmed down and Tony got on the sat phone and he called for resupply because we were now black on ammo, which to translate that, that's uh, you're down to about 500 rounds of ammo. So you're below your sustainment ability and it's called being black on ammo. So um, I walked out and I, I noticed Tony's face and it, it wasn't, one of those good looks. And I asked him, I said, what was going on? And he told me, he said, they told us they may not be able to get us resupply the next day. So I said, well, give me the sat phone. And I took the sat phone from him. And he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to call somebody I know back in the States. So I called a ranger buddy of mine back in the States. He was a major. And Real happy to hear from me, and then he kind of pauses, like, "What in the heck are you calling me from Afghanistan for?" I said, "We're in trouble." So we're black on ammo; we can't get a resupply. He says, "I'm on it." So that launched in motion probably one of the 
it was probably one of the most the craziest phone calls I've ever made because that message went to him, went to the XO of the unit we were attached to, who then called the general, and the general then called the Pentagon War Desk, and the Pentagon War Desk flipped out of their mind that we were running low on ammo, called the Kabul headquarters, where they were then chewed out. They were then called the Southern Command headquarters in Kandahar, who then called the Regional Command headquarters, and uh, you can imagine this was quite the cascade of everybody getting their tail chewed, and that originated from yours truly, which that's another story, but it all worked out in the end. Um, so the next day, as we're kind of getting ready to, uh, we're, we're fortifying the compound, and there's just, um, everybody's busy. Blake is trying to train the Afghans using no ammo and what's called talking guns, using verbal audibles to teach them how to control their ammo. I'm out building uh, reinforcements around the outside of the compound, and we're watching the Taliban come into the valley. We can see them each moving into, there's a major kalat, or which is a compound. There's a major compound that they're just flowing into, and there's another position up on the hill and a third point to, uh, to our east that they were starting to amass, and there was a lot of them probably well over 300. So we had um, we had a pretty good idea that the night was going to get pretty raucous. And uh, so we, I was building as much as I could the fortifications to slow them down on the weak sides where we could, um, using whatever scrap materials I could put together. I was scraping around. We found enough barbed wire and other things to make tanglefoot and, and snares and traps to try to slow them down at night anticipating a pretty heavy-duty raid, especially since they had been sending runners, messengers to our gate all day long, telling us they knew there were three Americans in there, and they had put a bounty on each of our heads. So we were a prize kill if they could get us. Um, so we went through this whole day. Each of us had assignments, and I was working with one small group of Afghans that were with me as we built fortifications on the outside uh, Blake was working with training, and Tony was working interior-wise to build a, a temporary medical facility and to set up some pre-designated targeting points for in case we were able to get air support and then we were able to designate where we knew they would be. So as we started to roll towards the later afternoon, probably around 3 o'clock, while we couldn't get any confirmation on a resupply, we still didn't know if we were going to get one enrolls the Afghan XO in a minivan with a water buffalo strapped to the top of his minivan. And this is typical Afghanistan. I mean, this is like, this is, you think it's crazy here watching this clown show that we're in. This is every day in Afghanistan. So as he rolls up in this minivan, when we've got, and understand, we're running Humvees, we've got helicopters, they can't give us a confirmation on any sort of resupply, because they're all worried about the IED alley, which is just south of us. Here comes Mr. XO of the Afghans. And he rolls up into the, into the, and we didn't know who he was. I mean, like, and they let him in, and of course, we're like, what in the heck is going on? And he drives up, and this was like a local taxi driver he had hired in a, in literally a VW minivan. And, um, he rolls up and he slides open the door and he steps out and all the Afghans are out, stop everything. And they run to him and they're all giving him hugs. And he pulls out some cases of RPGs and he pulls out some cases of, of mortar rounds and he pulls out cases of, of AK-47 rounds and they start getting all distributed for the Afghans. And then they see the water buffalo and the world stops. It's awesome. He, he brought this water buffalo down, this water bison um, down so they would have fresh food before the battle, I guess. And um, so they immediately lit up a fire, and one of the other guys that does bread starts making bread. And it's literally probably one of the coolest memories I have in Afghanistan because in the midst of literally on the cusp of what would possibly and probably be imminent death, the Afghans put the priority in the right place, to be very honest with you. 
They put the priority in celebrating the moment of breaking bread with one another, and we joined in. So they lit a big fire, and um, they skinned the, the water buffalo, which just so you understand in Afghanistan, it's, it meets, for most people, you probably turn your stomach. Uh, flies are everywhere on this stuff all the time. So, you know, they skin it and there's flies around. And they just took the whole carcass and they threw it on top of this wood charcoal fire that they built, big wood fire. And most of that wood's like acacia and it's uh, myrtle. It's just really dense hardwoods and it makes a beautiful fire and has a beautiful smoke and it imparts a beautiful flavor into the meat. And so it's laid out there and they kind of got it going on the side of the fire. I said on top of the fire. It's not right. On the side of the fire. So it's there. And then as they built this fire, then what you would do is just take your knife and go over and just cut off a chunk of meat and stick it on a stick and make a little, you know, like a kebab and roast it right there on the hot fire and then take some rock salt and then just put the rock salt all on that and then wrap it in this fresh bread and eat it. And that was, again, we've got Taliban amassing on the hills. And this is our moment on the cusp of life and death on the, and the frontier of nowhere. And as we sat there, we all three of us kind of pulled aside and uh, we, we had what we called our last supper. And we blessed our food and we just had a conversation. And when it's, it's um, an interesting time when you you're not certain if you're going to make it through the night. You don't know if you're going to live. And you have a moment of peace and everything comes into focus. We weren't getting shot at yet. We knew that if we didn't get resupply, the best we could hope for was to keep the Taliban at bay and then do an exfil. We already had our exfil routes laid in so that we could work together to create a three-man shooting team, fire team, to get out of there and call for evac. We had that mapped out, and that plan was in place and ready. We knew from the what the Afghans had told us, that if we started to get overrun, about 20 of the 30 at least would run themselves and get out of there. We only had two or three that we knew we might be able to count on. All of these things have been processed through our heads all day long. And so on the front of a Humvee, with some bread and some water bison, some water buffalo, eating meat freshly cut and cooked with some fresh bread. We just had a conversation. We had just spelt, we just basically shared a very enduring moment with the Afghans as they broke bread with us. And we just talked. We didn't talk about war. We talked about food. And then the three of us pulled aside and sat on the front of that Jeep on the Humvee, and we just talked about life. It was surreal, and it was so amazing because in those moments of greatest crisis, everything was pushed aside because of a couple of Afghans that made the food, and the food wasn't, it wasn't complex. We finished the meal, and... Uh, I went and recorded a message home to my parents. Tony and Blake each wrote a note home to their families. And we secured those messages. And so each of us knew where they were in the event that we had to bring them home. As things would turn out, and they turned out well. The Taliban always hit just as the sun went down and the moon, before the moon rose, so that they wouldn't be able to be identified. They're very good at that sort of thing. And um, we got this crackling call over the radio, and it's getting to that point. The sun is coming down fast and hard, and the American resupply is now about a mile away from us with four flat tires on their main rig. And I, you know, I remember Tony's words. I have a picture of him somewhere at this moment. It was an amazing photo of capturing him in this uh, moment of relief and yet intensity that swept over his face. 
where he realized that we had hope in that very moment. And um, anyway, he told him bluntly, you have about 10 minutes to figure out how to get your vehicles in or you're going to be locked outside and they're going to hit. As happens when events like this, a massive buildup, once we they flew, they uh, arrived in with about 50 to 100 Afghan soldiers that took positions everywhere. They brought in reinforcements of guns and supplies and the Taliban all literally ran away because they were overmatched. And we got air support too for the first time in a week. But what sticks out most of all wasn't that moment. It was literally the breaking of bread. I talked a lot about this the other night. We talked about Christ and the uh, disciples feeding the masses with a few loaves of bread and fish. That story has a very deep meaning to me, far beyond just the, the text, because I've seen the power of so much of that in a culture that I was foreign to, foreign in my beliefs, foreign in who I was, and yet we could always find common ground over bread, and with that as well, typically some form of meat or rice and rice. We've gone very, very far from that point in time. We're a culture now that our meals are on the go. They're for personal pleasure. Um, we seek the flavors that will make us feel good at the moment. So much of that is coming from an empty culture, a culture that has no spiritual basis. We can criticize Islam all we want, but I will tell you something. In the middle of those deserts, when you see people putting up with some of the hardest, greatest hardships and the only thing they have to cling on to is prayer five times a day, you gain a certain respect. You gain a certain respect for their resolve and you gain a certain respect for their duration on this earth. They don't do suicide. Suicide isn't talked about. They... They simply accept what they have and they make and they continue to fight through that to endure what they have and they work hard. That spirit is what built this nation. That spirit in our faith in God, that spirit in coming together and valuing the meal that we had together as a family and as a community, that spirit of sharing our blessings of what we made, whether it's food or making a preserve of jam or whether it's a, a, a kill that we had in hunting, we shared it, shared it with our family, and we were people were there to share with one another. And in the midst of the modernization of this world, all of that has been taken, not because it was stripped, but because we let it be stripped. And we've accepted the fast pace of life. Parents accept the fast pace of kids' life. We don't demand that they sit for a meal. We're going to be having somebody on next week where I believe we're going to have one of our Bards Fests as well, which is in Kansas. And he is he, he started what's called Operation, uh, I think it's called Operation Dinner Table. And all they did was start building or making sure every family had a dinner table to start bringing a place to break bread and to share the meal together. We have to get back to this. It's that simple. This fight that we're in, we make so much difficulty of. We listen to the big promises like you heard in the last hour. President Trump talking about building 10 new cities and call them freedom cities. This is just garbage, pure and simple garbage. He's talking about inspiring the new youth to use their innovation to build these new cities. I don't want any youth leading me. They don't even know what a family's like. They're more interested in, in their bug milk than they are in having a, a low carbon footprint, than they are understanding the importance of making a loaf of bread and sitting together and breaking bread and praying to Christ. This is the problem that we have is we're so, as a culture, we're so distanced from our Father. And it's it's very pervasive. And I would argue that it's pervasive even in the in the depths of many of those that go to church. Yes, I mean, I've seen it where work well when you get to Sunday and then everybody goes out to out to dinner or they come over to their house for dinner. That's Sunday, but it can't be just Sunday. It's got to be every day. Last night I talked about my the way my situation with my parents. And that is a beautiful thing. You know, I 
We break bread literally every day that I'm there. We have a meal together and we pray together. And there's something so incredibly powerful about that, that if we don't start all embracing this and encouraging it and infusing it in our children and infusing it in our neighbors, I don't care what we do to get rid of this cabal. We haven't reset anything at the moral basis and our faith. When we can take two cultures that are literally on one side diametrically opposed and we're willing to fight over our God to kill each other, which I always find the irony of ironies. I, I just, I shake my head at this stuff because we as people are so jacked up and we have, we love to have our anger and we love to have our hate. And if we don't have our anger and we don't have our hate, we don't have purpose. I've said many times that a true warrior has a loving and forgiving heart. And I mean that. And my origins of warrior training are for some of the best in martial arts and some some from the oldest styles, like Iaido, which takes us back to the art of the sword. There is has to be, in the greatness of the warrior, no vengeance, no malice, no anger. Because when you're there, you're at one with your space. And in our faith, we are at one with God. When I hear people try to tell me that there is a air in promoting a forgiveness or a forgiving heart. I just, I shake my head. They're fools. And I've had plenty of tell me this. They're fools. And I mean that for all it says. Because the forgiveness in the heart is what opens up the kingdom of heaven to start to work through us. And when we see that mightiness in David, David is a warrior, but he didn't go about Goliath with vengeance or anger. He went there with the openness and the forgiveness of what Goliath was to allow God to work through him and to deliver justice. Ask yourself a question. If you had to kill somebody to defend yourself, could you do it and still pray with them and pray for them? Could you do it without anger and malice in your heart? And my answer is, if you can get to that point, and you're clear with that, and you're walking with God, and it's God that raises your hand to do the deed, then you understand. This gets very contradictory in our faith, but it doesn't get contradictory when you're sitting in a war zone, and we're in one, but people don't get it. And the most principal issues that we have in all of this is truly being able to let go of our vengeance and our anger, to separate everything and come down to the principal issues of breaking bread, to understand that as one brethren, when somebody attacks us, we will hold the line. And we will hold the line and give our life to help another. That's martyrdom. And it's an incredible place to be. We need more martyrdom. I don't have conflicts in anything I say when I talk about a loving and forgiving heart, about raising a sword if need be. But I know that to get to that point to raise a sword, I will have used my prayer, I will have spoken to Father, I will have walked closely with Christ, and I will have made been very clear that the next decision that has to be made is a decision that was necessary and was understood by Father. I have no conflict. And the problem is we end up with these swinging issues of people wanting to go total pacifist in, in the Christian faith. Christian faith has never been pacifist. But I do believe that one of the greatest things that separates it from like the Muslim world is that it understands that there has to be a loving and forgiving heart within. When you meet somebody who is a radical Muslim, they want to just kill you. That's anger. That's vengeance. It's vile hatred. And it's what corrupts the heart of the human. If we get past that and we respect each other as warriors, then we're in a different place. In another location in East Afghanistan, it was out uh, near a, in between Gardez and, and Ghazni. There was, we were on a mission and in a, going and trying to connect with this very remote village where the Taliban had spent a lot of time. And in fact, we when we arrived, the Taliban had just left because this is, again, this is bizarro land in Afghanistan. 
And the, I was asking the question, I was doing the interviews and finding out why the Taliban kept coming there. The village seemed to be very content. There wasn't any overt threat. And here we were, and the Taliban had just left. And this was the answer. Cookies. <laughs> and I started to laugh. I Like, that must have been a mistranslation. What are you talking about? And you're like, this village has the best cookies in the entire region. I said, so you're telling me that the Taliban come in here, knowing that the village doesn't want them here, knowing that they could be exposed, but they sit with the elders because they want to get cookies? And you're like, yes. It's the best cookies in the entire region. So when I hear people tell me about, you know, like they misunderstand the importance of food. Old cultures understood the importance of food. And at this culture, this love village, unbeknownst to us, because I'm not a fan of Afghan cookies. They taste more like cardboard with some sugar on it and not much sugar at all. But apparently this village had the best cookies. And the Taliban knew it. So, and so with that, you learn again a depth of the importance of food. They were bridging differences. This village wasn't a pro-Taliban village. And yet over cookies, the elders would sit together and they would eat cookies and sip chai. And then the Taliban would go on their way. The Taliban didn't bother the village. We were expecting some big ordeal and it didn't happen. That mission was a strange mission the whole time through. We a lot of patrols. Um hours. I was riding on the back I was riding on the back of an Afghan flatbed and I it was brutal riding and five hours of just having your kidneys beat up by your by your body armor. Hundred and eight ton. But it was uh, it was an interesting mission in meeting the people, and so we end up near the end of this, and this is how this mission goes. We go in to find while we're there, where I where I notified that there are potentially two or three hostages being held by the Taliban. They were Afghan interpreters that were coming back from Jalalabad uh, to their home and they were ambushed and then brought up and were being held in prisoners. We thought maybe they were in the valley. We knew that there was a high Taliban presence there, though they had apparently scurried off when we got there. And it was again about they were there in part because of the cookies. So on the last day, the two prisoners that we were looking for, the captives of the Taliban, showed up in camp literally, and they still had the, the uh, bruises on their ankles from being shackled to the wall where they were being held. And so through a bit of questioning and tactical interrogation to try to figure out what had happened, the Taliban, had, there had been a drone flown over, and this is the greatest irony. The commander of the 101st unit that, we were, that was with us had decided that he was going to monitor his soldiers with a drone, not because of the fight, but because he wanted to make sure that they didn't do anything stupid like break dress code or break some of the SOPs. If you think our army is dumb today, it's been dumb for a while, just so I say it. The thing is that that drone was not being used what it was intended to be used for, which was to get the intelligence of the surrounding mountains where the Taliban might be. However, the Taliban didn't know that. The Taliban heard the drone. And so the Taliban freaked out, thinking that, that we were getting ready to do an assault on their position. And they cut the prisoners free and sent them down on their own. And the prisoners walked down to the village to be greeted by us and be taken back to their home. Now, for us, this was a mission flop. And it was a... The soldiers were fed up with the whole thing. They had had no contact there was nothing exciting to write home to home about. And the fact that the, the prisoners had been released on their own was just kind of like the final depressive moment on the whole mission. 
That's the American side. The Afghan side, this was a great victory. This was a great victory by Allah. For we had come into battle. We had chased away the Taliban who were eating cookies, and they had gone racing into the mountains, where suddenly, after our presence there and the overwhelming presence of Allah in the space, this is Afghan story, there was an incredible understanding that they were a mightier force. And with the knowledge that the Americans were with them and that there was a drone in the sky, that the Taliban had then realized that there was no match for this great army of the Afghan army led by their God. And they released the prisoners and sent them down to where the Afghans then celebrated as a blessing from Allah that they could bring their prisoners home without losing a single man and without losing having to fire a single shot. And so in celebration of this, as we left the valley, which was about an hour and two hours drive through a, a rocky, dried riverbed called a wadi, the Afghan command had, had ordered that their food preparers from the main base meet them at the main road in which they had a massive celebration with huge pots of food, huge pot, huge, huge loaves of piles of bread to where they all left their vehicles, got around, and they celebrated this great victory with food in the field. That story is another one of these great memories of Afghanistan because it's a matter of perspective. And to be quite frank, it's, I don't think they were wrong. But we tend to look too much at ourselves at what we do, and we don't look to the eyes of God. Where I am today, I agree with the Afghans, though I wouldn't be looking to Allah, I'd be looking through Jesus. But my point is that God's with us in all things we do. And it wouldn't be God's desire to have us to go out and kill one another. There wasn't a shot fired here, and yet there was a great retrieval. The two people that were being tortured were released. And in the celebration of this again, the Afghans got it right. They broke out bread. They celebrated. They shared food with one another. They came together as a, as a community. And they brought the community in around them as well. See, we've got to get back to these basics because defeating this enemy is not that difficult. When we are together and we're breaking bread and we're literally communicating, talking, and literally looking and relying on the eyes of God to carry us. Things look very different. And it isn't always that you need to be pulling a trigger or drawing a sword to consider a victory. That's the ego. That's the anger. That's this vengeance heart that we're so riddled with in this nation. And literally, when we get, there's so many people right now that are just so eager to get into a blood fight. I'm not telling you it's not coming, folks. I'm not telling you that's not going to be a day you may have to cross. I'd be a fool to say otherwise. But in the midst of the fight, even, you have to find the ability to maintain your sanity and to maintain your anchor on what's real. The eagerness to, to want to dig into the fight. I always say this, that's a juvenile heart. That's the part that hasn't been tempered by the hand of God. When God tempers your heart, you can be ferocious as a lion and not have to raise a sword of steel. That doesn't mean ever you don't carry your sword of steel. It doesn't mean you don't practice with your sword of steel. But the mightiness of all this fight is going to be built through the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit, in that story I just told you, if we told it through Christian eyes and did it right, our way, and did like that, it would sound very similar that God blessed us without having to go to fight. God blessed us with releasing the prisoners. This is one of these interesting times that we have to start opening our eyes to really realizing who is steering this fight. Again, I don't say anywhere in here that this thing might not get ugly. And I pray that it doesn't. But there is no reason not to maintain your vigilance as a warrior and yet pursue constantly that loving and forgiving heart, and above all, find those places to build bread, to bake bread, break bread, and to literally share the communal moment together. In that space, we empower God in the most glorious places and time. We come together as one body, and we share the experience to really appreciate the moment which he gives us. Let's pray.
Father, we're just very blessed to be here this evening and this unity that we've built and fellowship that we've built across time and across space. Father, these are just some reflections tonight as we've shared. It's centered on the principal issue of breaking bread and putting aside our differences and sharing a meal to appreciate our, our uniqueness and yet our common love for something that's handmade and blessed in your name. Father, we just pray that there'll be a, a greater effort and awakening in people's hearts to do the simple acts, the simple act of making bread and sharing it with our neighbor, to build the bridge, to love our neighbor, and to extend that into our communities, to build strong communities that look forward to a, a communal moment where we can come together, pray, and just enjoy the food. We don't have to come together to enjoy food just to hear a sermon, but just to the act of constantly building the relationships over meals, all of which the bounty is provided by you. And even in the worst of times, in the worst of places, you have shown me how this can happen. Even on the cusp of life and death, you've shown me how this can happen. And so I just pray myself for everybody, for the power of understanding that moment where when we come together and break bread and share the bounty which you give, it's a moment where we can live within a space that everything else stops, put aside our differences, mend the fences, and invoke the power of Jesus and the love of Christ in our heart. I say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So you know my encouragement. I've talked about it a number of nights now. And it's literally what we talked about the other night, the sourdough revolution. Bake some bread, folks. Sourdough is the best because it's all natural. It's all yeast. It's the way it started. But bake some bread. And get in a habit of baking it every week. Whatever excess you have, share it. If it's sharing it with the children or sharing it with your neighbors, sharing it at the, at the local community center or whatever that is. But bake bread. And in the process, break bread. And as you break bread, we're going to find a really incredible change that starts to happen. We need to build strong communities. That's how we weathered the storm. And whatever sits on the horizon, whatever force we may have to face, whatever evil starts to lurk, if we don't have strong communities, the evil will do what it always does, divide and conquer. It doesn't matter how many ammo rounds you have. It doesn't matter how good you are at shooting. If you don't have a community that appreciates the center point of what is important, we will be defeated. So let's bake bread and break bread and love thy neighbor. Patriots, keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll, he'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time and this place for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you Sunday night. For peace be still. Have a beautiful weekend. Enjoy your Saturday. Until then or until the next time, God bless, good night, thank you, and out for now. Oh, I want to feel something, I just want to breathe again, dive into the deepest depth, oh, I want to feel something. Get back in my body
Hallelujah. 